Welcome. I'm Joni Albrecht, Director of the John Marshall Center for Constitutional History and Civics. And we are pleased to present today's program as part of our 250th initiative commemorating America's 250th anniversary of independence. Before I introduce today's program and our esteemed speaker, I'd like to highlight a few of our upcoming lectures that I hope you won't miss. Um, this Saturday, December 16th, is the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. To commemorate that um, event, we have Dr. Richard Bell um, speaking about this dramatic act of protest that set the stage for American Revolution. That's at two o'clock. On January 11th, we have author John Reeves, who will be discussing his new book, Soldier of Destiny, Slavery, Secession, and the Redemption of Ulysses S. Grant, which explores how Grant rose from obscure army officer to general in chief of the United States Army. And on January 17th, we're pleased to welcome Dr. Richard Haas, um, noted diplomat and author, as our next uh, Marshall Scholar. He'll be presenting his new book, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. Um, and like today's program, that also is part of our 250th initiative. You can find out more about all of these events uh, by visiting our website, virginiahistory.org. Today, we're honored to welcome John A. Ragosta, historian at the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello. He is the author of Religious Freedom, Jefferson's Legacy, America's Creed, and For the People, For the Country, Patrick Henry's Final Political Battle, which is available for purchase in our bookstore, and John will be available for signing afterwards and is the subject of today's talk in a constitutional way, Patrick Henry, Thomas Jefferson, and the meaning of a loyal opposition. John will explore how Americans have and can disagree with government policy in a constitutional way, looking to the past for answers, as well as some, as well as some intrigue. Please join me in welcoming John Ragosta. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you, Graham, for having me. You know, I tell people we live in Charlottesville and we have this myth that somehow Richmond is so far away. And so I don't get here as often as I should. And, and just had a wonderful time spending a little bit of time this morning at uh, the, the galleries upstairs. Uh, so I'm looking forward to coming back. But I really appreciate all of your being here today. And I want to tell you a story that I think people should hear about. It's a story about Patrick Henry and the hyper-partisanship of the 1798-1799 period that almost destroyed the country. So it's always interesting when you talk to an author about how they got launched into this project. And I got launched into this project with a story. 
I came across serendipitously, almost by accident, a letter. And that's where I want to start. It's January 15th, 1799, at Mount Vernon. George Washington is living in retirement under his own vine and fig tree, to use one of his favorite biblical allusions. It happens to be a mild and sunny day outside Mount Vernon, but inside it is becoming very stormy. You can almost sense George Washington pacing the wide pine boards as his anger rises. And finally, the man we know of as the sword of the American Revolution sits down, picks up a quill pen and a large stack of paper to write a letter to someone he had not corresponded with for years, the man we know of as the trumpet of the American Revolution, Patrick Henry. Washington writes, there is a crisis when everything dear and valuable to us is assailed. He goes on to rail at some people who are putting their own political party and their own personal ambition above the country's interest. There is a crisis. Measures are systematically and pertinaciously pursued, which must eventually dissolve the union or produce coercion. And by coercion, George Washington meant the U.S. Army marching on its own citizens. He felt the nation was at risk, and he writes Patrick Henry begging him to come out of retirement. He thought we were on the verge of civil war. Patrick Henry was living in retirement at Red Hill, Virginia, down almost to the Kentucky border. He had been offered multiple positions to come out of retirement, Supreme Court Justice, Secretary of State, Senator, Ambassador to France and Spain. He had always refused. He had sworn that he would only come out of retirement if the nation itself was at risk, if we faced the horrors of anarchy. When he received George Washington's letter, he writes back, I accord with every sentiment you express to me. Patrick Henry finally agrees to come out of retirement because he believes the nation was at risk. So who was it when I read this letter? Who was it that was putting their own personal ambition above the country and was putting the nation at risk of civil war? It was Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and the radical states' rights agenda of the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. Well, Patrick Henry ran for office. He wins his election. Patrick Henry always wins his election. <laughs> but he dies before he can take office. It was said then, and I argue now, that had Patrick Henry lived, Thomas Jefferson almost certainly would not have been elected president in 1800. Well, this was a fascinating story. Here's the sword and the trumpet of the American Revolution against the pen of the American Revolution in a crisis that I had already finished my PhD in American history and I had never heard this story. And I wanted to know what was happening. And so I had three questions that I want to talk about today. What happened? Why is it that Patrick Henry, the man who is the intellectual godfather of the states' rights movement, the leading anti-federalist, during the ratification debates over the Constitution. 
Why is he coming out of retirement to defend the Constitution that he had opposed? Second, I wanted to know, what about Jefferson? If it's true that Jefferson would not have been president if Henry had lived, and for that matter, I think if George Washington had lived past 1799, Jefferson would not have been president, does this affect our understanding of Jefferson? Is it something about Jefferson that we need to know? And third, why was this not a bigger part of our history? Was it forgetfulness or was something more at work? So let's start in the summer of 1798 with the Alien and Sedition Acts. Now, if we step back a little bit, we know that after the country begins and the Constitution's ratified 1788, 1789, George Washington is the first president, the French Revolution occurs, and the first decade of the new country is going to be wrapped up into problems with foreign affairs. Washington says the country is too weak to get involved in the European wars, the Neutrality Proclamation in 1793, the Jay Treaty in 1795, maintaining the peace with Britain. It's not a very good treaty, but it keeps the peace. And then 1798. The United States sends peace negotiators to France, trying to enter into peace agreement with France, but they're met with the demand for a bribe. We won't even meet with your peace delegates until you pay us a bribe, the XYZ affair. This launches the so-called quasi-war. Now it's called a quasi-war with France, but it's a shooting war. In this period, France seizes over 330 US ships. The United States is afraid that we're gonna be pulled into the European wars. And importantly, this is the era of the rising Napoleon Bonaparte when he can't be beat. People are literally afraid of a French army, a Napoleon army landing on the shores of the United States. The Federalists control the government at this point. President John Adams, Alexander Hamilton in the background. What do we do? Well, they controlled Congress, they controlled the presidency, so they adopt the Alien Act. The, and actually there's several Alien Acts, but it gives the president the authority to deport without trial any alien that the president decides is dangerous. Second, they increase military spending. We might have a war with France, with Napoleonic France. And the third thing they do, most ominously, is they adopt the Sedition Act. The Sedition Act of 1798. This act literally made it illegal to criticize the president or the Congress of the United States. Now, by the way, you can say whatever you want about the vice president. <laughs> vice president's Thomas Jefferson. But if you criticize the president and the Congress, you can go to jail. Historians have told us for years that there were 14 prosecutions under the Alien and Sedition Acts, 10 of which resulted in convictions. And one might well ask, why is this such a crisis? that history was wrong. More, more recent historians have shown there were almost, there were over 40 indictments, over 120 people were indicted, and they specifically targeted the opposition newspapers. They were targeting the editors of the newspapers who were supporting the Jeffersonians. Thomas Jefferson saw this as a crisis of democracy. He called it a reign of witches. He writes James Madison, 
that if the Democratic Republican newspapers fail, Republicanism will be entirely browbeaten. He writes another supporter, to preserve the freedom of the press, every spirit should be ready to devote itself to martyrdom. It's a real crisis. It's a reign of witches. What do you do when opposition to the government, we're supposed to have a democracy, but when opposition to the government can end you up in jail. So what do you do? If you're Jefferson and Madison, what do you do? Well, what we would normally do is you win the next election, you kick the buggers out, you change the laws, right? That's what you're supposed to do in a democracy. But there is a problem. It wouldn't be the first or the last time when foreign policy issues had an effect on domestic policy and domestic politics. John Adams was personally popular probably for the first and last time in his life. He's taken to wearing a sword to events around the country. And the United States is rallying to John Adams because of the insult of the XYZ affair and the quasi-war with France. Besides that, how can you hold a political campaign when your editors are being thrown in jail? How can you have a fair election if the media, if the press is not allowed to comment on the policies of the government? So that's not going to work, or at least they feared that wouldn't work. So what do you do? Well, the second answer, you know, I occasionally teach law school and I say, you know, students stare at you and I say, what do you do? And they look at you and I say, you sue the buggers. It's unconstitutional. And they knew, I realize this is before Marbury versus Madison, but in fact, they knew that an unconstitutional law could be struck down. Thomas Jefferson had said that, James Madison had said that, John Marshall had said that, Patrick Henry had said that, Alexander Hamilton had said that, they understood that. But there's a problem. These cases, cases under the Sedition Act had been going on and none of the judges had suggested that it was unconstitutional. In fact, five of the sitting six Supreme Court justices had been involved in Sedition Act cases and never mentioned a whisper about the fact that this violated the First Amendment Freedom of Press Clause. And so if you sued and the Supreme Court said that this was a constitutional act, you're worse off. So what do you do if you're Jefferson and Madison? Well, they hit on a third solution. They were going to go to the states. They were going to ask the states to join the protest against the Alien and Sedition Acts. Now, this had been tried before. Patrick Henry had led the effort in Virginia to oppose Alexander Hamilton's financial plan, which he viewed as unconstitutional, Virginia viewed as unconstitutional. They had written a remonstrance asking the government to reverse on Hamilton's financial plan in 1791. But Jefferson wanted to do more. He said, we can't simply protest. We must act. And Jefferson drafts the Kentucky Resolutions. Now, the Kentucky Resolutions, we've all heard of them, but they're really a very important document. First of all, Jefferson says in the Kentucky Resolutions that the country is merely a compact of independent sovereign states. He resurrects this idea. The idea had disappeared after the Articles of Confederation had ended with the U.S. Constitution. Nobody was saying the United States was a compact until Jefferson comes up with the idea in 1798. He literally resurrects that idea. And the problem with compact is succession 
is legal. And Jefferson's talking succession. He writes one supporter that determined were we to be disappointed in this repeal of the Alien and Sedition Acts to sever ourselves from that union we so much value. Thomas Jefferson is openly discussing succession. The other problem with the Kentucky resolutions is they say that a individual state may nullify, you may recall that term, may nullify a federal law that they believe to be unconstitutional by themselves, which means we're gonna have different laws state to state. We're gonna have states arguing with states, states fighting with states, states fighting with the federal government. There are reports that Virginia is arming Virginia is suddenly buying thousands of muskets for Richmond. There's one report of a Virginia militia officer is quoted and saying, if France does invade the United States, I will take my troops to the French banner rather than to the stars and stripes carried by a political opponent. This is the crisis that George Washington and Patrick Henry see federal against states, states against states. Civil war was a headline in newspapers across the United States. It's a great battle of American history that's been largely forgotten. And Patrick Henry's involvement is particularly poignant. Patrick Henry had led the effort to oppose the US Constitution. He had warned the people, the government will be too powerful. The government will be too distant from the people. And yet now he comes out of retirement to defend that constitution. Patrick Henry's final political speech is March 4th at Charlotte Courthouse, March 4th, 1799. He, we know he's going to die in about three months and he's apparently suffering from the infirmity that will lead to his death. It's said when he arises that day to speak, he's bowed, he's weak, he has a gray cast about him, he's wearing a cap. But as he began to speak, a wonderful transformation comes over Henry. He rises up, his voice booms out to the gathered thousands as it had during the revolution. Patrick Henry says, you have planted thorns upon my pillow. Henry has a way with words. He says that Virginia is to the Union as Charlotte County is to Virginia. Virginia has no more right to ignore federal laws than Charlotte County has right to ignore the laws of Virginia. He goes on to say such opposition on the part of Virginia to the acts of the general government must beget their enforcement by military power, civil war, foreign alliances. He warns the people gathered there at Charlotte Courthouse, there will be a federal army marching on Virginia led by George Washington. Who will dare to lift his hand against the father of his country to point a weapon at the breast of the man who had often led them to battle and victory? Well, it's an 18th century election. They've been drinking. <laughs> Someone in the audience is drunk. We actually know his name, a fellow named John Harvey. He apparently, I would. This is a mistake. Henry turns on him, rises up. You dare not do it. In such a parasitical attempt, the steel will drop from your nerveless arm. This is classic Henry. 
If the administration has done wrong, let us all go wrong. Together, united, we stand. Divided, we fall. Is the federal government too powerful? Have they interfered with your rights? It's necessary to submit to the constitutional exercise of that power. You go to the ballot box. You oppose in a constitutional way. He says, if you don't, you can never exchange the present government but for a monarchy. I think Henry is very clear with the people. He says, I told you. I told you this would happen. I told you the federal government would be too powerful. I told you they would interfere with your rights. But we agreed. I didn't agree. I opposed. But we, the people, agreed. And if we disagree with the federal government, we have no option but going to the ballot box. The alternative is monarchy. Today, the alternative is dictatorship or tyranny. Patrick Henry defines a loyal opposition. He, he dies on June 6th. It's John Randolph of Roanoke, one of the leading Jeffersonians at the time, who, by the way, begins his political career that morning at Charlotte Courthouse after Henry spoke. He's one of the people who says at the time, had Henry lived, Jefferson would not have been elected president. So that takes us to the second question. What about Jefferson? Have we misunderstood Jefferson in all of this? I think the standard history is Jefferson, you have the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798. Jefferson writes the Kentucky Resolutions. Madison writes the Virginia Resolutions. Lo and behold, Thomas Jefferson is elected president in 1800. One follows the other. And we all triumph and become a Jefferson, Jeffersonian nation. But that's very misleading. In fact, the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions seem to fail. The Jeffersonians, the Democratic Republicans, take a thumping in the midterm elections. In the Deep South, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia, there had been four Federalist members of Congress before the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. There were 12 after, because people believed the Jeffersonians were threatening the Union. John Marshall is elected to Congress from Virginia. Henry Lighthorse Harry Lee, two Jeffersonian opponents, are elected in Virginia with the assistance of Patrick Henry. I wonder if Thomas Jefferson, when he had battles with John Marshall for the next 30 years, remembered that it was because of Patrick Henry that John Marshall was elected to Congress and became the Supreme Court Chief Justice. Jefferson is shocked by the elections. He writes that he astonished everyone. Well, it astonished him. It's a taint in that part of the state, which I had not expected. But here's the thing, and I think people have missed this. What did Jefferson and Madison do about this? I think they very dramatically pull back. They can't say that. They're politicians. They can't say we were wrong, we went too far publicly. Within eight days of the Virginia resolutions being adopted, the Virginia resolutions that he had written, James Madison is writing Thomas Jefferson saying, maybe we went too far. It is to be feared their zeal, their zeal, it was his language, 
Their zeal may forget some considerations which ought to temper their proceedings, the charge of usurpation in the very act of protesting against the usurpations of Congress. And that was the Virginia resolutions, which were much weaker than the Kentucky resolutions. In 1798 and early 1799, the Democratic Republicans, the Jeffersonians, were openly inviting the federal government to indict someone under the Sedition Act in the Deep South. Most of the prosecutions had been in the middle states in the North. They were openly challenging, daring the federal government to indict someone in Virginia or Kentucky. Virginia considered a law that would have given a state judge the right to issue habeas corpus against a federal prisoner. Consider that. Federal government indicts someone, puts them in jail, and state judge lets them loose. That's what they had been suggesting. In 1800, James Callender, now we may have heard of James Callender. He's the person who's going to be later advertising Thomas Jefferson's liaison with Sally Hemings. He's put in jail in 1800 as a Jeffersonian for violation of the Sedition Act. And James Monroe, the newly elected governor of Virginia, writes Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, don't do anything stupid. They realized they had gone too far. They realized we can't have states against states, states against the federal government. They pulled back. The term nullification disappears from Jefferson and Madison's language to be resurrected in South Carolina again in 1828 and ultimately to explode over Fort Sumter. I think that this explains a lot about Thomas Jefferson, about President Jefferson. You know, people have been saying for 200 years, Edmund Pendleton said at the time, and historians have been saying for 200 years that Thomas Jefferson as president is a great hypocrite because he won't do the things that he had been saying in the 1790s he was going to do. Well, I think there's another possibility here, which is that Jefferson and Madison realized they had gone too far. He's chastened and he very dramatically pulls back from what he had been doing. He does not win because of nullification. He does not win because of states' rights. He wins at the ballot box, exactly as Henry had suggested, because he starts to talk about the federal government's too big and they're interfering with your rights, rather than talking about states opposing the federal government. And Jefferson's first inaugural address, and I did suggest if you want to reread a wonderful document, reread Jefferson's first inaugural address and, and think about it in this light. The only line anybody remembers from that inaugural address is, we are all Federalists, we are all Republicans. And historians have treated that as sort of a cute phrase that Jefferson came up with, as if he's patting the opposition on the head. Of course, I won, so I can say that now. I think it's heartfelt. If you read that address, Jefferson writes, we need to unite in common efforts for the common good. Jefferson seems to have the first understanding in the new country, the country is only 10 years old, that the president of the United States is the one person elected by the entire nation and must speak for the entire nation. He seems to understand that what unites us is more important than what divides us. And he pulls back and, and seems to abandon, at least for the time, that kind of a radical states rights agenda. The irony is, had Jefferson lost the election of 1800, it might have precipitated the crisis because Madison and Jefferson might have turned back to that kind of a radical approach.
So the irony is Henry dying, Washington dying in December of 1799, Jefferson winning at the ballot box diffuses the crisis and the crisis gets forgotten. But that leads to the third question. Is there something else about this and about Patrick Henry? You know, Patrick Henry, now here in, in Richmond, maybe people are a little more familiar with Patrick Henry, but most Americans have heard of Patrick Henry. But if you ask them, what did Patrick Henry do? Why do we remember Patrick Henry? At most, they remember seven words he spoke about a mile and a half from here. Give me liberty or give me death. As if that's all that we need to know about Patrick Henry. And this is wholly inadequate. Even Jefferson says that Patrick Henry gave the first impulse to the ball of revolution. He was far before all in maintaining the spirit of the revolution. It's not now easy to say what we would have done without Patrick Henry. Henry leads the opposition to the Stamp Act when it looked like Americans were just going to acquiesce with his Caesar has had his Brutus speech. The Liberty or Death speech, March 23rd, 1775, is about arming for the coming war. The war has actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Why stand we here idle? And he wins a tough vote. It wasn't a pushover, a tough vote to get Virginia to arm for the coming war. His language becomes a rallying cry. He's the first governor of the largest state by population, by wealth, by land territory. He's critical in getting supplies to Valley Forge. He's critical in sending George Rogers Clark to the, to the Northwest Territories. We have the states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, because of that effort. He's critical in revealing to George Washington the Conway Cabal, which was attempting to replace Washington as commander in chief. After the war, he becomes the leading anti-federalist critically important in the adoption of the Bill of Rights. You have to remember, we have no Bill of Rights in the Constitution. And one of the critical claims of the anti-federalist, Patrick Henry being the leading anti-federalist, is we need to have a Bill of Rights. His critique of the Constitution is critical for, for jurists today and lawyers to understand intellectually what was happening at that time. And in 1799, he, I believe, defines a loyal opposition. George Washington... George Washington thought that it was Patrick Henry was the essential man in 1799 who could stop the crisis. He was on everyone's shortlist of leading founders in 1776, in 1786, when, the, when they're calling the Constitutional Convention. So why is it that we know so little about Henry? Is it matter of historic memory or something else? Well, I think there's three things going on. The first is that Henry doesn't really worry that much about his historic legacy. You know, I tell people, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, George Washington, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, they were really very worried about what you and I were going to think about them. <laughs> you know, they curate their papers, they save their letters, they try to get them all organized, they worry about things that maybe they shouldn't have said. Henry doesn't seem to care too much. He burns some of his letters, he doesn't keep a very good copies of letters. Second, he had opposed the Constitution. Of course, he's on the losing side there. And he refuses federal office. What if he had accepted that position as Supreme Court Justice, as Secretary of State, as Ambassador? In 1796, they're talking about running him as Vice President with John Adams. 
And then Adams Henry ticket would have been absolutely unbeatable. And he declines. He says, no, I oppose this government. It's up to you people to run this government. But third, he is directly and viciously attacked for decades by his political opponents. And I think those political attacks had an impact. It is said that he is all tongue without either head or heart. What we have to do, I think, is devoutly pray for his death. He's avaricious and rotten-hearted. He read nothing, had no books. He wrote almost nothing he could not write. In his heart, he preferred low society. His legal reasoning is not worth a copper. George Wythe refused to sign his law license. He had contempt and hatred for George Washington. All of these things were said by Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson really dislikes Henry. You know, people talk about Hamilton. Jefferson had a political dispute with Hamilton. He had a personal dispute with Henry. And for an 18th century gentleman, that was different. He's saying these things for years after Henry's death, 26 years after Henry dies. Thomas Jefferson is meeting with the young politician, Daniel Webster, and he's repeating some of these things. We know some of this is absolutely ridiculous. Contempt and hatred for George Washington, the story we've already discussed shows that's completely false. The idea that George Wythe wouldn't sign Patrick Henry's law license, somebody found a copy of Patrick Henry's law license in the records I think it was in Chesterfield County in the middle of the 20th century, and there's George Wythe's signature. He had no books. He had an excellent library, we know now. Um, it's not Jefferson's library. Jefferson has perhaps the best library in America at the time, but it's an excellent library. He could read Greek and Latin. Other Jeffersonians picked up on this. It was said in 1799 that he was senile, he was jealous, he was a religious fanatic. The Aurora newspaper, the leading Jeffersonian newspaper, in early 1799, when John Adams suggested that Patrick Henry should lead the Peace Commission to France, trying to make peace with France, the Aurora referred to Henry as venerable. A reputation is alike pure and his talents conspicuous. After his attack on the Jeffersonians at Charlotte Courthouse, the Aurora writes, he is in the insuspicious temper of second childhood, it has made him a dupe. He drag his age limbs and break his wind. He farts. The roar is telling fart jokes about Patrick Henry. This has been picked up for years by Jeffersonian. After the Civil War, Edward Pollard, another name that you may have in the recess of your mind, Edward Pollard, the author of The Lost Cause, the idea that the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery, he despises Patrick Henry because of the 1799 campaign where Henry comes out against radical states' rights and nullification. Edward Pollard writes an extended essay against Patrick Henry in which he accuses Patrick Henry of not even being a very good speaker, which was absurd. Everyone who had ever heard Patrick Henry speak said he's one of the greatest speakers of all time. There's a proposal after Henry dies, there's a proposal to put a bust of Patrick Henry in the state capitol. It's defeated by the Jeffersonians. We can't even put up a bust to the first governor of Virginia. Historians have picked up on this. 
They say Henry's opposition to Jefferson in 1799 is a puzzle, one historian suggests. I don't think it's a puzzle at all. Now, I should digress a moment. Why is Jefferson so fixated on Henry? It's not simply this campaign of 1799. It really relates to Jefferson's governorship. You will recall when Jefferson becomes the second governor of Virginia following Henry, the British invade. The government is forced to flee from Richmond to Charlottesville. Jefferson goes with them. Bannister Tarleton, bloody band, takes the redcoats. They march to Charlottesville, and the government flees again from Charlottesville to Stanton. Thomas Jefferson's governorship had technically expired several days before Tarleton shows up. Jefferson wrote the head of the General Assembly, the Speaker of the House, and he says, look, you need a new governor. You need someone with military experience. It isn't me. Jefferson's a very capable person. Military experience is not one of his things. He says, get someone with military experience. And when the legislature flees from Charlottesville to Stanton, Thomas Jefferson mounts his horse. He's one of the best horsemen in, Char in Virginia, and he flees to Lynchburg to his home at Poplar Forest. The Virginia government is left without an executive. So when they get to Stanton, they promptly appoint Nelson as governor, uh, Thomas Nelson Jr. He's actually governor of Virginia and leads the Virginia militia in the field at Yorktown. It's not something that's often done by a governor. And then they launch an investigation of Jefferson's governorship that seems to accuse Thomas Jefferson of incompetence, cowardice, and dishonor. Now, history is not entirely clear as to who is responsible for that investigation. In some ways, it doesn't matter because Thomas Jefferson believed it was Patrick Henry. By the way, I think it was Henry as well. Historians disagree about that, but it doesn't matter. Jefferson thought it was Patrick Henry. He writes James Monroe that this investigation, the mere investigation, inflicted a wound on my spirit which will only be cured by the all-healing grave. So as I said, Jefferson disagrees with Alexander Hamilton. He hates Patrick Henry, and he's going to spend his long life taking every possible opportunity to diminish Henry's reputation. And he certainly can't admit after the election of 1800 that Henry and Washington had forced Jefferson and Madison to reconsider their state's rights agenda and to pull back from what was a dangerous position. This is, um, by the way, I think important, not just because of Henry. I think this does explain uh, to a significant extent one of the reasons why we don't know enough about Henry but it's also important to remember that our founders were not marble statues. They were politicians. And they sometimes fought with each other. They sometimes didn't like each other. They sometimes changed their views over time on various issues. And I think the Henry Jefferson dispute is just a wonderful thing to remember that the pen of the American Revolution was not particularly fond of the trumpet of the American Revolution. So I've been talking long enough. Um, you know, when, when you enter graduate school in history, um, the, the standard question from the professor is, so what? So what? 
It's an interesting story. So what? Well, I think there's a number of so what's here. Um, first, the centrality of newspapers and the free press. Jefferson and Madison were correct. This was a reign of witches. If the free press is not permitted to criticize the government, we cannot have a functioning democracy. Anyone who tells you that the free press is the opponent of the American people is themselves an opponent of the American people. You cannot run a republic or a democracy without a free press. Second thing I think it, it tells us is that states' rights can go too far. Even Henry, the great anti-federalist, the intellectual godfather of the states' rights movement, says there's a danger in suggesting that the states are independent from the federal government. And it's a line that we hear repeated these days. We hear people talking about nullification, forgetting where that almost took us in 1799 and where it did take us in 1861. Third, I think Henry was right about the broader question. And it's important to remember, when the government goes wrong, when we disagree the government, we go to the ballot box. We oppose government in a constitutional way. It's Henry's phrase. We talk about the revolution of 1800 when there was a peaceful change of parties between opposing political parties. And that's become a foundation of the American Republic until 2021. And yet we forget that it almost didn't happen. And it was Henry and Washington who say, no, the correct solution is you go to the ballot box. You know, the critical rule in a democracy, the first rule of a democracy is the majority rules. We forget the second rule, which is equally important. The minority must accept the first rule. And the fourth thing I think about the so what is that the impact of politics and personal disagreements on remembered history. History is not just lived, it is written. Today, Patrick Henry is in see, seen as an increasingly radical proponent of radical uh, individual liberty. Um, he's become an icon of the modern Tea Party movement, Liberty Uberales. That's not Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry was deeply committed to the community in which he lived. He stood up and said, I voted against this constitution, but we agreed, and we have to live with that. And I think that Henry plays a very important role in defining for us a loyal opposition. So Patrick Henry deserves better. I hope you enjoy the book, um, and I hope it's informative. And with that, I'd be very happy and interested to hear your questions. Oh, it's a quiet group. That was terrific. Thank you. Told in a very compelling way. Uh, but I wonder if you need a footnote these days as to what might be constitutional. As you see the wipeout of 50 years of precedent with the women's rights thing, and you see, uh, I don't know, AR-15s approved as a way to, they're coming after our guns. So is there a way that in any stretch of this, we might have violence as approved constitutional opposition? Um, I, I think, first of all, it's a good question. I think the answer to the last part is no. Um, but Henry actually addresses that. Um, you know, when I, I sometimes do tours at Monticello, and I tell people, 
you know, people say the country's divided and we have these disagreements. In fact, Americans agree very broadly on fundamental principles. They disagree on how you're going to implement them. You're not going to hear, I tell people when I teach the constitutional law, you know, nobody, no politician says during a political campaign, yeah, that constitution sucks. We got to get rid of it. Everybody says, no, no, we embrace the constitution. That's what we agreed to. We're going to have different interpretations. And I think some of the interpretations, some of the modern interpretations are very questionable. Um, we could talk about that, I suppose, although maybe I shouldn't. Um, but it's still, you know, the, the distinction I would draw, for example, to get into a modern situation, take Bush versus Gore in 2000. The Supreme Court decision is highly questionable. I mean, if you don't remember that decision, Florida was doing a recount of ballots. The Supreme Court stopped them. They said, stop doing the recount. Two weeks later, the Supreme Court said, there's no time to do the recount. So I guess Bush wins. Um, Al Gore came out and said, that's what the Supreme Court said, George Bush is president. Compare that to 2021. Um, so there is a difference. So I think, I think the Bush Gore decision in 2000 was fundamentally wrong, but I think Al Gore was fundamentally right. Um, now to your question at some point, Henry discusses this actually in the, the, I didn't read, of course, the whole Charlotte County speech. He's asked, what do we do if the government becomes tyrannical and we, and, and, you know, there's, there, we can't do anything. He says, look, the people always have the power to revolt. Revolution is always an option, but that's when he makes the comment, but if you do it, you're going to end up with a monarchy. Um, and the difference is people say, well, wait a minute, so Henry's a hypocrite because he's the one saying liberty or death in 1775. No, the difference was in 1775, we didn't have a vote. There wasn't anything to be done. We had remonstrated. There was no way to elect the king. There was no way to elect the people in, in Whitehall. I think Henry's saying pretty clearly in 1799, you go to the ballot box, that's your remedy, because the only other remedy will, will end up in a dictatorship. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, look, that's not to say the government's always right, far from it. Yes, sir. I, th I think they want to wait for the microphone because they're live streaming this. Any relation between Patrick Henry and George Mason? Yes, it's a very good question. Um, Mason is the other leading anti-federalist at the ratification debates in Virginia. And so it's Henry and, and Mason who are leading opposition. And of course, we know that George Mason had led opposition in Philadelphia demanding a Bill of Rights. So Mason's critical as well in insisting that we have to have a Bill of Rights, uh, both Henry and Mason. What's interesting, a story I didn't tell you is, um, <laughs> trying to be nice to Mr. Mason, um, when the anti-federalists lose, in the vote in, in Richmond. And remember, it was a close vote. They lose. That evening, George Mason calls a meeting of the Anti-Federalists here in Richmond to talk about what do we do now. And Mason comes forward with a remonstrance. We don't have a copy. The copy has not been found in history. But we have been told that his remonstrance was violent. It would have incurred opposition to the federal government. It would have said, just continue to oppose, fight it, fight it, fight it. Patrick Henry is called to that meeting. And there's some difference in history as to what exactly Patrick Henry said at that meeting. And I talk about this at some length in the book. I go through the various sources and explain why. Um, I think what Henry says pretty clearly is go home. 
go home. We fought the good fight. Give it a chance. Try to work with the federal government and then seek amendments to do what needs to be done. And the reason why I think that's what Henry says is his final speech in the ratification debates, a fascinating speech. He had opposed the constitution throughout. He had made some very ugly speeches about slavery. Uh, he had fought very hard. And in his final speech, he seems to know he's gonna lose. And he says, I, I feel like I've taken too much of the convention's time. If I lose and I don't have the, the I'll have to paraphrase again, I have the quote in the book, he says, I will be peaceable, I will go home, and I will seek to right the wrongs of this Constitution in a constitutional way. He uses that phrase again. Um, so Mason gets a little carried away. They, they, they're working together throughout this process. But at the end of the day, Henry seems to say, Mr. Mason, it's time to go home. We lost. That's a hard, I mean, Americans don't like to lose. I mean, that's one of the problems we have. In a democracy, you lose sometimes. That's the way it works. I don't know about you. I don't always get the person I vote for, doesn't always win, you know. And, and Henry seems to be saying, you know, that's what happens. You lose sometimes. It's an important lesson. Yes, sir. Well, thanks so much for your commentary and important topics. Um, can you play out a little bit more the, uh, if Henry and Washington had lived, Jefferson uh, wouldn't have been president? How, how do you project that? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. It's a little complicated. I've been arguing about this with the, um, the, the editor-in-chief of the Thomas Jefferson Papers retirement series. Um, and he, he corrects me a little bit. He says, well, Jefferson may not have been president in 1800, but he may have been president in 1804. Um, when you're doing alternative history, it gets harder and harder the further you project out. What it's about, though, but one of the reasons it's an important question is it's all about the Electoral College. Um, something we're still grappling with today. The Electoral College is still fairly new, but the states were figuring out in the 1790s that it was subject to manipulation. And so they're adopting a winner-take-all system, which had not been the plan. Madison comes out and says, that's not what we intended. And in fact, Madison is going to later support a constitutional amendment demanding that electors be elected in districts, basically the system you have now only in Nebraska and Maine, so that you could get some electors from either candidate. But in the 1790s, the states are beginning to figure out we can increase our power if we have winner-take-all. So Virginia adopts a winner-take-all electoral system clearly intended to help get Jefferson elected because they know that Jefferson's going to win Virginia, but they also realize that Adams might carry a few districts in Virginia, especially after the Alien and Sedition Acts when the, the, um, the number of Federalist members of Congress from Virginia, I think Virginia has 19 members of Congress at that time, and the Federalists went from four to eight in the 1799 elections. So if you look at that, you say, well, wait a minute, Jefferson could lose up to eight votes in Virginia from the Electoral College. Adams would have won. So um, that's specifically what John Randolph is talking about, that in 1799, in the General Assembly, the General Assembly that Patrick Henry was supposed to be attending, Virginia adopts a winner-take-all Electoral College law. And that law only passes by five votes. 
And so John Randolph later says Patrick Henry was good for five times five votes any day of the week in the Virginia General Assembly, which was true. And he would have blocked that law. Now, it actually becomes more complicated than that because actually Jefferson wins very handily in Virginia in 1800. Um, so, so it's, you know, alternative history is alternative history. We don't know. Um, but if you work through the math, I think that Henry would have thrown enough electoral votes in Virginia. He also had a large influence in North Carolina, which has not yet adopted winner take all and a large influence in Kentucky. And so if he had swung five electoral votes, Adams would have won. Um, but it's, it's speculation. But it's interesting that John Randolph of all people is one of the people saying, uh, John Randolph of Roanoke, who's, you know, he's a bit crazy, but <laughs> he is a leading politician. Um, he says that uh, Henry would have blocked Jefferson becoming president. But it's the Electoral College. Imagine that, people manipulating the Electoral College. <laughs> well, thoughts? I guess we have another question. I have a theory about public education and Mr. Jefferson and Patrick Henry. I believe Patrick Henry was a utilitarian. He said, give some tax money to the preachers because they're well-educated, they have time to kill, they can educate children. And I say, Mr. Jefferson was an idealist. He said, the preachers will not stick to reading and writing and arithmetic, they'll get into religion. Then you have the government, the state supporting a particular religion. Uh, am I, is that a reasonable interpretation um, or you want to embellish? No, uh, it's, a, it's a very, no, no, it's a very good question. And, and I know where you're coming from. Um, and I think ultimately it's wrong, but because uh, you're, you're, it, it's right, but it's also got a problem because there's two different things going on. What's being referred to in the question is in 1784. So the revolution is over. Um, you've got to take a step back. Before the revolution, Virginia has an established church. Everybody pays taxes to support the Anglican minister. doesn't matter if you're Presbyterian, Baptist, you're paying taxes to support the Anglican minister. That system is suspended in 1779 during the war. Uh, it's actually my first book is about this. It was my dissertation. Um, the Presbyterians and the Baptists basically say, if you want us to fight in the war, you got to stop taxing us to support Anglican ministers. The state does. But you get to 1784, so the war's over, and people are looking around Virginia, including Henry, and saying um, the churches are empty, the churches have been hurt, they've some of them have been destroyed, um, some of the churches have been used as stables during the war. We really need to promote um, not simply education, but religion, because all of the founders certainly agreed that religion was good for the country, including Jefferson, they just disagreed as to whether religion needed the support of government. Um, that, that the Jeffersonians, Madison would say, no, not only is that not necessary, it's counterproductive. It perverts both religion and government when you mix the two. So Henry supports the general assessment in 1784. It's often considered Henry's bill in which, um, and it was an improvement. The idea was we're gonna have a tax to support religion, but religious teachers, 
was the language. Uh, but it's going to be fair. We're going to ask everybody, when you pay your tax, who do you want it to go to? You want it to go to the Baptist? You want it to go to the Presbyterian? You want it to go to the Anglican? So that's fair, right? And um, Henry supports that. And the idea was it would support teachers, Christian teachers. Um, and Jefferson and Madison oppose that and say, look, we know what's going on here. Um, this is government getting involved in funding religion. We oppose that. And so it's defeated fairly soundly. And instead, in January of 1786, we get Jefferson's statute for establishing religious freedom, which has fairly clearly separation of church and state. So in that story, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. But there's another story that I think is important in, the, in that regard, is that Jefferson's bill for the general diffusion of knowledge, which is introduced as part of the revisals of the law during the, the revolution. Keep in mind, the legislature is meeting, we're having a revolution, we're getting rid of Britain. Well, what do you, the laws, a lot of the laws assumed a king, they assumed a parliament. And so Jefferson, who is it? Jefferson, Pendleton, and um, who's the third? I'll think of it in a minute. It's with are on a committee to revise the laws. And Jefferson drafts the bill for the more general diffusion of knowledge, which would have had a three-tiered system of public education. And it's critical for Jefferson, it's public, because he says, look, I look around the world and we only educate rich people's kids, but I see people of genius and abilities from all classes of society. And so if we're gonna run the country, we have to educate people at public expense so that we can get all those advantages. So Jefferson supports a very broad system. So I think that he's not, you are correct in 1784, he's being rather philosophical uh, about the bill for general assessment uh, because he thinks it's a mixing of church and state. But his broader view on education is, is quite utilitarian that um, we need to educate everybody in a republic and we need to educate them at public expense. And the bill for the more general diffusion of knowledge says that all free children, boys and girls, should go to elementary school at public expense. That includes free black children. Now, it doesn't cover slaves, but all free children, boys and girls, go to school at public expense. The best and the brightest of the boys would go on to the academy, what we'd think of as high school at public expense, and then the best and the brightest of the boys go on to university at public expense. He, of course, doesn't get that. He gets the University of Virginia. Why? People don't want to pay the taxes to support public education. We don't have, and actually I just saw it in the film upstairs. I was very pleased to see it in the film upstairs. We don't have broad public education in Virginia until 1870, um, when post-Civil War we adopt a broad public education. So, um, I said, I think you're right about that 1780s episode, but I think Jefferson's view on education more broadly is quite expansive and utilitarian. But it's a very important point. I think that's all we're going to have time for today, John. Um, John's going to be available in Commonwealth Hall immediately after the lecture to sign books and answer any additional questions you have. But for now, let's give him a round of applause for a wonderful Thank lecture. you so much.